2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. We've got election day tomorrow, but living in a democracy is more than just a vote on a particular day, right? Elected leaders take office and then they hear from their constituents and at least theoretically represent their district. In the Bay Area, this participatory politics, the part where the people go to meetings, send in feedback, etc., can sometimes seem excessive. Muni, for example, noted that a small change to parking near bus stops in San Francisco would take seven years to implement because of the number of public hearings required. So today, we tackle civic engagement here in the Bay Area and beyond. Can there be too much of a good thing? That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. In an essay for The Atlantic, Jerusalem Demsas notes the reality of life in this country. Angry residents and neighborhood associations, she writes, have the power to delay, reshape, and even halt entirely the construction of vital infrastructure. Community input processes, she argues, have spun out of control, having been hijacked by the small groups of residents who veto projects for, quote, reasons that range from the sympathetic to the selfish. It was not always the case that local residents had this kind of a say in the workings of government and their communities. And we'll get to that history in this show because it's an important one. But it is the case now. Here to talk about why she doesn't think it should be, we're joined by Jerusalem Demsas staff writer at The Atlantic, previously worked at Vox as well as on climate change policy research. Thank you for joining us, Jerusalem.
0: Hi. Yes, thanks for having me.
2: So what do you think the core issues are in this kind of participatory process?
0: Yeah, I think the core issue really is, is, is it democratic, right? Because we hear something like people now have a say in their local government, and it sounds like an unambiguously good thing. If something's happening in your community, you should have the ability to communicate with your elected officials and ensure that, you know, your voice is heard. But in reality, what's happening here is not that, you know, we have a democratic process that's aggregating preferences like voting and making sure that, um, you know, the government officials are, are taking into account what people want. But what's actually happening is that, you know, people don't like change and very small groups of people are able to hijack processes that should reflect everyone's desire. So, you know, everyone is seeing housing prices rise. We're seeing rents rise both across California, but, and across the United States. And, small groups of people are able to say, hey, um, that's bad, but I don't want, you know, new duplexes in my community. I don't want even new single-family homes in my community. And so that can override the need that everyone else has to have affordable housing in this country.
2: Yeah. I mean, immediately when I think about... This topic, like the objection that comes to mind is like, but what about urban renewal and these kind of mid-century days when freeways are rammed through neighborhoods uh, and you also have, you know, large scale destruction of different types of of housing in the name of kind of urban redevelopment. Um, What's what's the answer to that?
0: Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. One is that these processes are not being used by, um, you know, the downtrodden marginalized communities that we're most concerned of most of the time, right? Like when we think about the kinds of people that are able to hire uh uh, you know, a lawyer, have that person on retainer and say, I'm going to sue the state or a developer or, you know, look up obscure environmental regulations or, um, you know, other state statutes that I can use to impede um, what's going on in my community. Those are not individuals who are, um, you know, the most sympathetic cases that we're talking about here. So I think the first thing is to recognize that these processes are not being used um, in most cases by people who we think of as not having a voice in government already. These are people who do have a voice in government already having that voice even more amplified um, in in this case. And secondly, I think it's the question of how do we want people's preferences to be heard by the government, because I think the most important thing here is that during urban renewal and during a lot of these, um, in in the worst cases when the government really tramples over um, individual rights and and preferences on the ground, um, often and sometimes even in the name of of the quote, greater good, what we see is that people don't actually have real democratic representation. They don't have access to the ballot box. They don't have access to voting. Their elected officials at the local level don't really feel accountable to people in their communities. And I think it's obviously important that we make sure that that happens, whether by increasing access to the ballot or developing um you know, better uh, um, political participation mechanisms um, at the state level to ensure that people's voices are, are recognized and not ignored. But that's different than saying, you know, anyone can have any objection and therefore uh, a new, you know, homelessness shelter cannot homeless shelter can't be built for 10 years and it costs the state $5 million to do that. I mean, that's just a system in which we're not actually um, creating democratic outcomes. We're just allowing a small group of people to hijack the process. Yeah.
2: Well, and, you know, around here, um, housing is the obvious place where this has kind of gone wrong. But I want to talk a little bit about transportation. I mean, you have some numbers um, in your stories. You've done a few stories on this. You know, our central subway here, uh, in your story, the the cost that had been tallied was $920 million a mile, whereas a project in Paris, which you would think would be of comparable expense, went for just a hundred and sixty million dollars a mile. And there's kind of similar examples of other American cities and corollary cities uh, in, in Europe. I mean, these are other rich Western democracies where the price is like much, much lower. Is, you think participatory processes like these, the ability to, for many different types of citizens to kind of veto or slow down uh, these projects are responsible for a big chunk of that or just like a little chunk of that difference?
0: I think they're responsible for a very large chunk of that difference. And I want to be clear here that it's not just um, very rich Western liberal democracies that are doing better than us on building um, rapid rail infrastructure like subways. Um, It's also countries that are a lot poorer than us um, that are doing this as well. I mean, Istanbul, uh, we're seeing Italy, we're seeing, um, you know, Uh, uh, Spain. These are leaders on building rapid rail infrastructure much faster than we are. And we have a lot more money than they do. We have, um, in many cases, uh, we have fewer labor protections. We have fewer environmental protections. I don't think anyone could say that Italy is unconcerned with historic preservation. Um, And, uh, you know, they're still able to care about all of those things and still build infrastructure, transit infrastructure at a much um, cheaper rate. And I think I think it's really important to recognize that it's not just, you know, the cases that are obvious, right? You hear about a very wealthy community um, wanting to block high speed rail or a, a, a new subway station being opened near them. And that becomes really clear to people. What I think is really interesting that researchers have also found is the way that government preemptively tries to avoid that conflict by taking really expensive uh, um, uh, uh policy decisions. So, you know, instead of saying, you know, we want to make sure to build the best transit system we can, that means we want to service people in dense locations, you want to get people from where they actually are working to where they live to where they play to where schools are. Instead, you say, it's too much work to try to go through all of these community input processes. So instead, we're just going to build these train lines, um, you know, along existing freight rail lines, which don't actually go to where dense communities are, and so it's not actually providing a real, valuable service to people. So, in addition to uh, not actually, uh, you know, being what people need, you're actually driving up a bunch of costs there because people are spending a bunch of their time, um, policymakers spending a bunch of their time trying to avoid conflict instead of just building the best service possible um, for people. And I think this really, this fear of conflict with, um, you know, what they're commonly referred to as NIMBYs, not in my backyard folks, has really shaped, I think, a lot of what's going on within, um, you know, public uh, servants' offices. And you hear this a lot, that uh, people don't want to deal with this kind of conflict, which can become very interpersonally um, dramatic, where you have people yelling at you as you to try to, to try to do your job and build not just infrastructure for housing or, or transit, but also often environmental infrastructure. And that shapes how you choose to go about it. Maybe you're not that innovative with what you're doing. Maybe you don't try um, uh, you don't try to go around and and find the best outcomes here because all you're spending your day doing is dealing with the potential for um, a really bad um, flare up from the community. And so I think that that's that's a real problem.
2: Yeah. We're talking about civic engagement and participatory processes in our democracy, and how they may or may not have be working. Uh, we're joined by Jerusalem Demsas staff writer at the Atlantic, and I want to add Paul Sabin, who's a professor in the Department of History at Yale. Sabin is the author of Public Citizens: The Attack on Big Government and the Remaking of American Liberalism. Welcome, Paul.
3: Ah uh, thanks, thanks for having me on the show
2: so you know as i as I'm listening to Jerusalem talk it feels like there's kind of two conflicting uh, kind of versions of how American political processes are supposed to work, are kind of coming to the fore. You know, we have uh, this, what I think maybe you would think of as uh, kind of a New Deal liberalism that's about like building new stuff for people and that kind of stuff versus a kind of more adversarial liberalism where you're kind of trying to slow down those uh, processes or make sure that different voices are heard. Can you talk about how we sort of Got this set of political arrangements.
3: Sure. Yeah. Great. Uh, yeah. You really set it up well in terms of the tension between these two aspects of liberalism coming out of the uh, you know post World War II period. You know, that's a 1950s and 1960s. You know, as you mentioned, you know, urban redevelopment with the highways, but you also have a whole range of different ways that the kind of a, a newly uh, expanded and empowered government was uh, deploying science and uh, technology, and that included things like pesticide uh, spray programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh that Rachel Carson famously uh, advocated against uh and uh uh you know as you said the highways um, most famously I guess and dramatically you you have government uh, undertaking sort of bureaucratic initiatives uh in the as part of the national security process of so things like atmospheric testing of nuclear uh, weapons mm-hmm. uh and I think that out of uh out of all this uh um you know you, you uh got the idea uh that that, that government uh you couldn't necessarily be trusted uh mm-hmm. and uh, the idea, you, you got the idea of an act that maybe you needed active citizens to uh, speak up and represent a public interest uh, in administrative forums that were uh, either dominated by the agencies themselves you know, or or private industry, and so that that really uh, comes starts to come together uh, in the late 1960s and early 1970s with the formation of public interest advocacy organizations. Uh, and they see their role as uh, representing the voices of the unrepresented uh, and interests that are not typically represented in, in the administrative process. Uh, and so so that becomes a, uh, a major a major goal. Uh, and you know one of the aspects of that is the passage of the National Environmental Policy Act, which we could uh, discuss further, yeah. but kind of structures that into the uh, the federal decision making process.
2: Well, and like you see this as a, as a good thing at first, right? I mean, within this context.
3: Well, I mean, I think you can certainly see many ways in which it wasn't uh, a necessary, uh, necessary thing and, the, and that, that, that uh, uh, there were a wide range of interests uh, and values and constituent, you know communities that were not being adequately represented uh in the process uh and you know people like Ralph Nader and others you know are uh, are kind of criticizing congress and the agencies for basically being captured by private interests uh and serving the uh the agencies that they're supposed to be regulating uh so you have a uh you know a, a power industry serving the power companies a nuclear uh, you know regulatory board serving nuclear power uh mm-hmm. and and they and and they they sort of assert that these other other interests need to be represented in the process so so yeah, I, th- I think that it was in some ways inevitable that there will be pressure against uh, against that dominance of the policy process, uh, both by sort of not very accountable agencies uh, and and also the industries that were uh, were, were increasingly dominating
2: them. Yeah. We're talking about the development of civic engagement and participatory processes in our democracy. We're joined by Paul Sabin, professor in the Department of History at Yale and the author of Public Citizens, The Attack on Big Government and the Remaking of American Liberalism, as well as Jerusalem, Demsas, whose stories in The Atlantic inspired this uh, show. We'd love to hear from you. Simple question. Would we be better off with more or less community input in these processes. Give us a call 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break.
4: This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum.
5: Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? you left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi
0: on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about participatory processes in our democracy and how well they are working. We're joined by Jerusalem Demsas staff writer with The Atlantic Magazine, and Paul Sabin, professor in the Department of History at Yale. I want to add another voice to this conversation, just a kind of another perspective on this topic. Catherine Levine Einstein, associate professor of political science and director of undergraduate studies at Boston University. Uh, Einstein is the co-author of Neighborhood Defenders, Participatory Politics and America's housing crisis. Welcome, Catherine.
1: Thanks for having me here.
2: So I'd love you to just tell us a little bit about your kind of research program, which looks at who actually does community meetings, right? I mean, who's, who's there? Who's in the seats and how well, how representative they are of their communities?
1: Yeah, so my Boston University colleagues, David Glick and Max Palmer and I, we poured through thousands of pages of meeting minutes um, from planning and zoning boards basically looking at who showed up to meetings about housing development um, and using a combination of administrative data on like voter records and property records, we were able to show that the folks who showed up to these meetings were deeply unrepresentative of their broader communities. They are whiter, And they are way more likely to be homeowners and over the age of 50. They are also overwhelmingly opposed to the construction of new housing. So only 14 percent of people who show up to hearings about housing development show up in support of new housing. So these forums are biased in favor of privileged homeowners um, who are overwhelmingly opposed to the construction of new housing.
2: What about like during the pandemic when there were all these Zoom meetings and the the barriers to access were a lot lower?
1: Yes, so during the pandemic, um, so the previous study was done before the pandemic when all these meetings were in person and as all these local government proceedings turned over to zoom um, and other online platforms. Um, my team and I sort of thought, you know, maybe this will make things better because it's a lot easier to log on to Zoom than to show up to, you know, an in-person meeting. Um, And so for a nine-month period, we collected information for the exact same cities and towns about who showed up to these online forums and what they said. And it was really depressing because the results basically stayed exactly the same. The folks who showed up were still the same privileged, older, um, largely white homeowners, and they were still overwhelmingly opposed to new housing thing.
2: Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, having listened to a lot of these meetings and we've done lots of, of shows on this, it does feel and Jerusalem, I think I'm going to come to you first on this, but I, I kind of want to go around the horn here. It does feel like part of what has happened is this view of government and even like local government, like your city council, your planning board as somehow itself undemocratic or like, I think, um, Paul Simon, I think you you called it uh, like other as opposed to of ourselves. Jerusalem do you is that what's kind of motivating this series of essays from you is trying to get people to have a different view of their local government?
0: Yeah, I think it's really important to realize just how, um, you know, uh, how, how strange local government really is in the United States. I mean, it's first of all, it's like an outlier. Um, most other nations don't do government this way. And, and secondly, I think it's just to recognize that it's not about vilifying individual people who work in in local government, but to see how the incentives work when you um, look at how local government actually functions. So, you know, at the state level, people may vote. And I mean, we're all going to be voting tomorrow um, on you know, a bunch of different things, including, you know, whether the state's going well, like is, is, you know, is the economy going well, or jobs going well, is housing affordability an issue, but we don't conceive of our local governments as being responsible for those types of things, right? Like, I don't like think of my, uh, well, I do, but like many people often don't think <laughs> of their um, mayors or their city council members or people on the zoning board as being responsible for whether or not wages are rising or, you know, whether or not, you know, there's enough housing um, in their community and housing affordability, they, 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 they turn to higher levels of government to deal with with that. But the problem is, is that the power to actually deal with that crisis is actually held at the local level. And so the incentive, though, at the local level, right, is is to, you know, say like the 500 people who show up to vote for me or the the 5% of my constituents that actually engage with this process, um, those are the people I'm going to really cater to and listen to. Whereas you can't really do that on the the state level and the national level. You have to care about a broader swath of people and you have to care about the macroeconomic effects of the decisions you're making. And so as a result, I think the really big thing here is is not to say like, like, you know, you know, local governments are just all full of bad people who don't care about these, these larger issues. It's to say, like, you need to make sure that the people who can actually solve the crisis are at the level of government at which voters are holding them accountable. Otherwise, there's no accountability really that to be had, you're holding, you know, a governor accountable for something that's happening at the zoning board level, you're holding, um, you know, Senators responsible for something that they don't have um, that actual ability to, to change. And so I think it's really recognizing and figuring out how to um, create a political process whereby the people who are responsible for um, these decisions are held accountable for them by the public. Yeah.
2: You know, Paul Saban, I mean, I think in these processes, I mean, I think the way that this plays out in, in housing, you know, the people who are at the meeting are seen as um, opposing sort of powerful interests or opposing financial interests or opposing, you know, developers um, and and developers seen as sort of like a a purely negative force, like in the context of some of these conversations. Um, Can you talk about sort of how this developed, like this kind of adversarial process that that we're describing, which, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem like inevitably we would come to this point where this these particular kinds of rhetoric are deployed in these particular kind of processes.
3: Well I think you can go back to you know the 60s and 70s again and think about uh uh the attack on what was called then the the growth machine but the idea that the uh you know powerful uh uh you know governmental and commercial interests were dominating uh, the policy process and kind of pursuing their their interests uh, uh, uh over the interests of of community residents uh, um and, uh, and and that, that's kind of where these processes started to emerge of trying to, to slow those things down. I think what, one of the things that's most striking about the current our current situation now uh, is that there's a lot of pressure, is that there's a lot of pressure to do something. Uh, and we create you know these systems, uh, create a lot of checkpoints, uh, as Jerusalem has has written about uh, and as uh, and also, un, you know, Empowering certain uh, certain voices, particularly. Uh, and when you when, when there's a housing crisis, uh, it really creates a, a bottleneck uh, of an inability to, uh, you know, create public goods. And I think back then it was more a problem of, uh, you know, people building, uh, uh, I don't know, stadiums uh, in low income communities or highways, you know, through through neighborhoods. Uh, and so it was more about stopping things in order to protect some kind of public good. But now there's a need to kind of create these public goods and the processes are, are really hampering that.
2: Hmm. You know, Matthew, one of our listeners, writes in to say the recent example of Woodside, that's a town for our uh, national guests, uh, a very wealthy town in south of San Francisco, exemplifies the issues at hand. This hyper affluent town on the peninsula declared itself a, quote, mountain lion habitat in order to exempt itself from affordable housing mandates from the state. The town council backtracked after a wave of ridicule, but the incident shows how reflexive and entrenched the NIMBY position is around here. In what sense is this an intra-state conflict between the state-level consensus and the local resistance? Is this the problem of the commons a la 2022? If the people want green space in the commons, but the state wants housing, who wins and how? Uh, Catherine uh, Levine-Einstein, Associate Professor of Political Science uh, at Boston University, how how would you address that question uh, as our resident political scientist on the panel?
1: Yeah, so... um I think this is a, a real real challenge right now is trying to figure out to what extent land use decisions should be made at the state level and taken out of local control um, and what or whether they should be kept um, under local government purview. Uh, but I think this example from Woodside and sort of from other privileged communities suggests this like really important need for state control and state preemption In places that are reluctant to build, there are lots of communities that will not sort of voluntarily build new housing, no matter what incentives are put in place. Um, And so I think in those contexts, um, you need sort of stronger state level influence. Um, Where I think this sort of state level preemption of local government power um, becomes somewhat more controversial is when we're talking about low income communities um, and places um, that, you know, going back to urban renewal have really been railroaded by higher levels of government. And so I think there's been a real tension um, in trying to figure out when state level influence um, is appropriate and politically palatable. But it's clearly needed in land use um, when so many local governments don't have an incentive to build. Yeah.
2: Let's, uh, let's start bringing in some callers. Got some uh, interesting callers on the line right now. Uh, Judy in San Francisco, welcome to the show.
6: Um, hi. I find myself offended by the conversation of, you know, the move to taking away all local control. Um, and I, um, I am, um, you know, the history of the word Yimby and NIMBY comes from the civil rights movement. And the NIMBYs were the good people that wanted to integrate neighborhoods and worked very hard to make that happen. And now the real estate industry has taken on that word to help luxury um, buildings be built anywhere they want in our towns and cities. Um, And they call the more progressive NIMBYs, who are working towards affordable housing, um, and that's my area, which is the west side of San Francisco. We have a number of groups and a lot of activists, and we show up, and some of us are homeowners. I was a homeowner. I am a homeowner in the same place I was a rent-controlled single mother in for 20 years. Not all of us are totally privileged The way you frame it is just really, really disgusting. Judy, can I I ask you this? How
2: much affordable housing has been built on the west side of San Francisco in the last, say, 10 years?
6: The two big um, uh, ones that are in process at the moment are 100% affordable, and we fought for them against a very, very small amount of local, very local people around the uh, few blocks of those uh, projects who were against it for true NIMBYism reasons. But there's a huge group, maybe it's a third name, but the word NIMBY needs to be taken away from the real estate industry. You know what I mean? They want to build, and they want to build luxury buildings, and we have an excess of luxury availability. I'm talking about San Francisco, um, and I'm talking about living on the West Side for me. Um, And um, when that first happened, um, where they took – There is no reason for YIMBYs and the amount of YIMBYs that are out there to be so um, aggressive about wanting to build and save rich people and make sure they get places to live. That's how I see it, with a very, very small percentage required because people like me, who they are calling NIMBYs, fought for an affordable percentage in all building projects. Yeah. They didn't fight for that. Yimby people didn't. They're fighting for luxury apartments or even market rate. But market rate is luxury today. Working class people can't pay well, those uh, $4,000 yeah. a month.
2: Do you really appreciate it. And, and uh, we have
6: a lot of groups on the West Side. It's framed in the national papers and even locally. The Scott Wieners, he, um, every politician knows that if they go for the Yimby's, They will have the support and the money for their campaigns from the real estate industry, and many um, of our politicians are going that way at the moment. Instead of fighting Uh, the good fight, we need housing for working class and the very poor in in our cities, probably L.A. as well, and Sacramento and San Jose. And it's a terrible shame that the research is being done, and it's very slanted.
2: Well, Judy. Thank you for your perspective. Really appreciate you bringing that perspective to the conversation, which I know is a, is a, is a big chunk of uh, our listenership and of the, of the city and of the, of the region. Um, Jerusalem, I know that you've been in these trenches talking about these issues for a long time. How, how would you respond?
0: Yeah, I think there's a a few things that I would say. First is that the very same things that are blocking affordable housing from being built are blocking market rate housing from being built. So when we talk about the community input process, this is not something that is just blocking somehow like luxury high rises. Um, In Los Angeles, a trip Prop Triple H was passed uh, um, by overwhelming voter support, which um, uh, uh, allotted um, one billion dollars towards affordable housing um, to be built in the city. That was passed in 2016, I believe, and you know, four years after that, when I looked at it, like no, yeah, I looked at it in 2020. More has been built now, but for four years, I talked to affordable housing developers in Southern California who would tell me repeatedly that community input processes were stopping them from being able to build these affordable housing units that had been created and financed um, for uh, um, pe- by people in uh, Los Angeles. Um, it had been approved by people in Los Angeles for affordable housing. And it's the same stuff, like it's the same zoning requirements, it's the same community input processes, the same power that is distributed to people um, who already have a large voice in the system. So I think that's the first thing here is that affordable housing and market rate housing are being stopped. But the second thing that I'll say it's like, is that I find it very bizarre that many pe- 90% of Americans live in quote unquote market rate housing, which means that they bought it they bought it at the on the private market, and yet there's this kind of vilification of of this new housing um, being built at all. And I think there's a, there's a few things going on here. One is that people don't see um, the ways that these new units actually help everyone um, when you think about how new housing units come onto the market. There's two ways, right? Like one is that a new housing unit is built. And the second way is that a, a housing unit that's already occupied um, gets becomes vacant and now is available for other people to access it. I think most people in their lives have lived in not just new places they've lived in. I'm currently living in an apartment that other people have lived in before. I've only ever lived in houses that other people have lived in before. I don't think that that is somehow um, a bad thing. I think that when new housing gets built, it means that people who can afford it will go live there and they will empty out units that exist um, uh, 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 already and make it possible for other people to move into those places. And this isn't just theoretical. There are studies after studies after studies in different locations, looking at different types of supply shocks, looking at different economic conditions that find repeatedly that when you build new housing, even if you are building these luxury high rises, you are of making it impossible for more people to live there. And you are having a positive effect on rents, um, and, and bringing those down. And I think this is just something that it very unintuitive for people, um, because of course, when you look around your community, you see tons of different things coming up. You see a bunch of new construction of, of, uh, units that maybe you, you feel like you can't afford that aren't accessible to, um, uh, lower income folks. And you feel like that is not serving you. But I, I just really want to stress here that for the majority of human history, the way that affordable housing has been created is that people vacate existing units and make it possible for other people to move into them. And for the decades now, we've made it impossible for people, wealthier people, to vacate those units. Um, And now you see really wealthy people from New York City to DC to Boston living in really old apartment buildings, living in really old housing units that should have filtered to become more accessible to new home buyers, to younger people, um, to people who don't have access to high paying jobs. And those are being hoarded now. And so I do think the vilification of new buildings is really misplaced and is, is a big part of the problem.
2: You know, Paul Sabin, uh, professor of history at Yale, you know, one of the things I, I think I'm picking up on, on in this conversation is that people maybe with similar kind of politics on the front end from kind of different generational uh, perspectives are kind of coming to a different uh, set of policy prescriptions about how to get to the same ends that I'm, I'm actually pretty sure Jerusalem and Judy probably agree on, that they want like integrated communities with lots of affordable housing.
3: I think that's uh partly true and there are some different attitudes towards uh towards private developers for example uh you know Jerusalem, I think articulates a more recent uh idea uh whereas I think in the 60s and 70s there's a lot of hostility to private developers uh, as I was saying before um, but I think that the other uh you know the I think another thing that's going on here just is the uh the the mismatch uh that's you know gotten accentuated over time uh between um efforts you know in a, place, in, in a state like California to uh, to preserve certain kinds of qualities uh, of life and uh, residential communities uh with uh, you know the way in which that's become you know out of out of out of match with the population growth in the state uh, and it's really putting uh pressure to try to reimagine or, or you know create a new vision for what communities could look like that isn't locked into uh, the kinds of residential developments that might have existed you know decades ago and I think that uh, that's where the pressure to change you know is really coming from uh, and there's resistance to that and I'm not sure that's a clear you know that that you know, that, that, uh, that's part of where the mismatch is, I yeah. guess.
2: We're talking about civic engagement here in the Bay Area and across the country and how, how well it's working, getting different perspectives. We're joined by Paul Sabin, professor in the Department of History at Yale, Catherine uh, Levine-Einstein, associate professor of political science at Boston University, and Jerusalem Demsas, who's a staff writer at The Atlantic, whose stories on this inspired this show. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about civic engagement here in our democracy and different participatory processes that have uh, developed over time and how well they're working. Joined by the Atlantic's Jerusalem, DEMSAS, Boston University's Catherine Levine Einstein, also the author of Neighborhood Defenders, Participatory Politics in America's Housing Crisis. And Yale's Paul Sabin, who wrote the book Public Citizens, The Attack on Big Government and the Remaking of American Liberalism. Um, Going to go back to the phones, and we have a nice uh, case study here. Kalima in Daly City, welcome.
7: Hi, um, my name is Kalima. I'm on the board of the Jefferson Union High School District um, here in Daly City. We just finished our workforce housing, um, which has been uh, 120 units for our staff. And we have about 10 acres of land that we wanted to use to raise money for the district, so leasing the land out for market rate development. We would make money off the lease. There would be housing helping the Daily City meet its RENA numbers. We thought it would be a win-win situation. I was so naive. It has been a nightmare um, with a handful of residents, some who don't even live in Daly City, who just made it their mission to try to stop it. And a lot of the things that you were saying is resonating with me, just being vilified for building market-rate housing, even though it does have an affordable housing component, but just the fact that we're building market-rate housing um it's like the evil empire which i don't understand when we know that housing is a huge need and that's the reason why most of our teachers couldn't afford to live here because there's not enough housing so the influx of public record requests coming to all of our meetings petitions i mean that have gone across the united states and signers from around the world we're a district of four thousand students and it's just been embroiled in this you know, when the vast majority of people who live here are fine with it, no one has ever come to the meeting and said, don't build the housing who lives here. So it's just it's been really frustrating.
2: Oh, man, Kalima, I think that experience is is one of the things that's kind of changing the politics around um, some of, of these developments. Do you think it's going to end up happening, Kalima?
7: Um, I am willing to continue. I know that this is a good idea. I know that this is something that will help our district. It'll help our community. Um, even if they include this housing development, which would be 1,200 units of housing, um, the, the city will still have to find other ways to meet its arena. So this is a third of the city's arena right here built on a school property that is not going to affect any of their neighbors. There's no neighbors. If you know how high schools used to be built, they're kind of recessed. Mm-hmm. So it's like the perfect place. If you don't build 1,200 units of housing here, where do you build it in Daly City? Yeah. Um, th- so I'm going to keep pushing forward, and I'm hoping that we can continue to get the support, but the fact that we have to do this much level of extra work for a handful of people who really can't speak to why they don't want it, they just don't want it.
2: Yeah. Also, if you heard uh, Klima saying, RENA, that's Regional Housing Needs Assessment, right? That's how much housing each uh, community in the state is supposed to build. Um, thank you so much for sharing that experience, Klima. Um, really just like kind of... <laughs> Uh, a, a perfect exemplar of the kind of situation that we're that we're talking about. You know, um, Catherine Levine Einstein, I know that you've done work. You know, you heard her story from from Daily City and how difficult this has been and and just the the different roadblocks that, that they've encountered. Do you have ideas for how we could maintain what feels like the good things that, you know, Paul Sabin was talking about earlier, that these developed for a reason, these developed Because historical circumstances sort of called called them forward and the the need for them, but that also maybe deal with some of the problems we're hearing, too.
1: So I think we really need to move away um, from an approval system that is essentially done on a project by project basis, Um, because when we ask people from the community to gather for an individual housing development, it inevitably incentivizes opponents to show up because a new housing development has all sorts of concentrated costs like construction noise, changes in views that just really are motivating um, to people nearby. Um, And in contrast, it's comparatively harder for each individual project to attract supporters for whom the benefits might be quite diffuse. And so I think as much as possible, we need to be moving these types of community conversations to be at a minimum at like the city level so we can talk about maybe city level rezonings and then allow new developments to be built by right so they don't have to go through this ad hoc process. So I think that's sort of one thing. Um, I think another big challenge that this, um, you know, really important story from Daly City illuminates is the deep and unpopularity of developers. Um, so there's actually mm. survey data from big cities that shows that developers are as unpopular as Donald Trump in these like very liberal cities. And so I think um, that's something that pro-housing advocates are really gonna have to reckon with the deep distrust, um, again, with a deep historical legacy of private developers um, in these communities.
2: Uh, you know, I also wanted to give you a chance to address uh, just one comment from Sean, who writes in to say, uh, older, privileged homeowners, question mark. That makes it sound like my wife and I did not work hard to buy our home. It was not given to us. We had to sock away money and negotiate a mortgage, which we must pay every month. As homeowners, we have a very strong interest in the future of our community, and maybe that's why we show up to the table to ensure our future. Do we not get a say uh, in our community? And, I, you know, I just want to note, you know, Sean, I don't think we're trying to take anything away from, from homeowners out there. But I also just want to g- give you a chance to address uh, – Catherine like the, the kind of the in the inside of that question which is essentially maybe there's a reason that homeowners show up when other people don't because they care more about their community that's I think what Sean is trying to say
1: yeah absolutely and this is um you know essentially the the central tenet of like this home voter hypothesis Um which articulates this idea that homeowners are going to be you know, more invested in their local communities and therefore we should expect them to show up more in local politics and maybe they should even have more of a say. Um, and I would argue that this um, you know, is deeply undemocratic and has frankly led us to a place where we are underproducing this key public good. Um, And that renters are absolutely sort of equal contributors to their community um, and people who for whom we want to produce homes. Um, And so I think I I certainly believe that homeowners should have a right um, to to have a say over what goes on in their communities, but so should renters um, and so should young people. um, And I think those perspectives are equally valuable in a robust local democracy.
2: Of course, because it's the Bay Area, we have gone down the road of housing, housing, and also some more housing. Um, But Brian in Oakland has uh, some questions about this kind of process for other uh, types of projects. Welcome, Brian. Hi. Go ahead. So uh, I'm a street safety advocate
8: in the Bay Area. Uh, We're asking cities for basic improvements to our streets so that people can be safe and comfortable as they travel around their neighborhoods. Like We're looking at such improvements like speed bumps, crosswalks, bus stops. These are all well-known by experts in the city to be basic improvements um, Mm -hmm. that uh, most people like. When you survey a town, people will be like, yes, I would love a speed bump on my street. (laughs) Um, Getting these sort of improvements through the city council or through Oak Dots uh, or through DOTs, it can be really hard. It can take years to get basic improvements. There are things like if you want to do construction work for a building, those can get approval within like, I don't know, two weeks. But approval for a speed bump can take years. Mm. So how do we uh, kind of improve the process so that neighborhoods can get the uh, improvements that they uh, want without having to go through years of process, like needing to get two thirds of their neighbors, especially if they um, don't have the
2: time or are working on other things like um, like their jobs. Right, right. Brian, thank you uh, so much for, for that question. I mean, Jerusalem, this is kind of like this this overhead. I mean, I'm sure if I was an economist, which I'm not, I might call it a tax uh, on communities in, in trying to do kind of basic improvements because so many different types of projects that are kind of civic improvements now have processes that have built up over the years to to be really quite a high bar
0: yeah Certainly. I mean, I think this is just another really good example of things that should be, as, as Catherine just mentioned, like, by right. That means that, like, there should be certain types of things that we just recognize as good for the community, whether it's, you know, picking up the trash or it's installing, uh, you know, uh, safety features like stop signs or, or speed bumps that, like, are demonstrated to save lives. These types of things shouldn't go through an onerous process. We already have evidence that they don't have massively harmful environmental impacts or anything like that, and that people's aesthetic preference around whether or not they like to see a stop sign should not be more important than whether or not a kid gets hit by a car because there wasn't a stop sign there. And so the question is like, how do we ensure that these things go, um, are, are developed quickly and, and are not being stymied by these agencies? And I think it's really just a matter of political will here. Um, I, I talked to the, at the top of the program about how um, the prevalence of nimbyism and the, abil- and the structure of local democracy is really um, uh, really pushing public officials to be so much more cautious about what they're doing out of fear um, that they're going to have to deal with this kind of backlash that is really just personally difficult, but also just like onerous to deal with um, on a day to day job level. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, a really a really big, 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 big part of this. Um, And I think I'd also say here that, like, you know, uh, I know Paul mentioned um, the National Environmental Policy Act in California. There's a state level of equivalent called CEQA. CEQA. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. And CEQA and has been used to block things like bike lanes and, and to, to, to protect things like parking lots. Um, these are regulations that are stopping things that communities really want and really need from happening. And there needs to be, I think, a real overhaul of how these how these laws work.
2: You know, to your uh, point, Jerusalem, Aaron writes in to say, I'm a local elected official and I really appreciate this conversation. One thing your discussion adds that is not discussed often enough is the importance of how elected officials view their role. As mentioned earlier... The NIMBY perspective is vastly overrepresented in every meeting, so what will often decide the vote is how sensitive the city council is to the loudest voices versus how much responsibility they feel to act on their own idea for what is right. Given the structural imbalance of who shows up, I think far more electeds need to do more of the latter. That isn't easy. I personally receive plenty of insults because of my votes, but it's hard to—it's a hard step that needs to get made to actually get uh, more housing. You know, um, Paul, I think... What I want to come back to you on is there are clearly good and important things about having participatory processes. I mean, I can think, you know, environmental justice leaders, for for example, uh, I think use some of these tools and, and, and processes to stop projects that might be harmful to their communities. Do you see ways that these processes could be redesigned, reimagined, Or are there historical parallels where this kind of stuff was working better, not urban renewal and maybe not the kind of situation we're describing now, which I think most people would agree is a bit dysfunctional, but somewhere in between those those two eras?
3: Well, that's a great question. And I think the uh, part of what needs to happen is that we have to hold up the uh, value of efficiency and effectiveness on the part of government uh, to be uh, maybe a a more significant part of the. Mm uh governing process um you know not just so 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 that you can have the participation but that it not become uh, 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 uh an ev- inevitable source of delay and the delay itself uh, becoming as some of the callers have said uh uh you know a, a way of killing a project and so i think trying to I, I think that when the founders of these advocacy groups and people advocating for participation you know when they, they create they thought of participation as a public good uh sort of unabashed uh and i think they didn't really think and take into account the way that efficiency and effectiveness is also uh, uh an important value in governance uh and we need to figure out a way to balance uh that better i mean i'm not in terms of how to uh, reform it i think you'd have to look at specific uh cities and states and different different uh mm-hmm. incidences spoken um, like a true historian yeah <laughs> <laughs> but i think Cat, Cat, Catherine mentioned you know one example uh that i think has been successful which is the idea of uh, uh trying to bunch uh, a whole set of decisions into a city-wide process or, or a state uh, a, a state led process uh, and when you do a larger level de- uh, de- decision making process that isn't uh, case by case uh, then it's easier to invest more resources into structuring a conversation so that uh, more voices including those of renters you know people who want to live in the community they 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 can also be included in the process but when you have just one-off decisions uh, it becomes it's harder for uh, for these those or, those groups to be represented in, in the decision making. Yeah,
2: you know one of the concepts or conceptual things that kind of really occurs to me here is this idea of kind of input legitimacy, like the process looking the right way and uh, and having some some of the right features versus kind of like the output legitimacy. Uh, Katie Einstein, is this something that you think is like useful for people to think about? Just like that these, the, the, the outputs of a lot of these processes and how those get tied back to how those processes actually worked?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I I think um, both for members of the public and for public officials, it would be really useful um, to have a greater emphasis on um, sort of better understanding how the process is actually contributing to measurable outputs in the community, whether it be bike lanes or other street safety initiatives or new housing. Um, I think all too often, and I'll say this as I had the personal experience of serving on one of these planning boards in uh, my town. I think there can be a real temptation when you're on one of these boards um, to engage in sort of compromise um, and other things that seem good for process. Um, but then in practice, if you're sort of engaging in these kinds of compromises over every single housing development that comes before you, you're going to have a really market impact on the housing supply. And so, yeah, I think as much as possible, if we can center what these boards are actually doing, um, in addition to process, we might end up with better outcomes. Yeah.
2: Uh, One other thing for you as well. Are there known ways to make the community participation more representative of the community at large? I mean, yes, we've got so elected we, officials listening and everything too. So, you know, Yeah, <laughs> no,
1: that's great. We, yeah. we identified one, um, which is really exciting. Um, so it's this initiative in um, Newton, Massachusetts, which is a, a wealthy suburb, um, a street suburb just outside of Boston. And their planning team um, pursued this really cool focus group approach um, for their city level rezoning. And so they held traditional public hearings, but they also held set aside focus groups for renters, for people of color, for people with disabilities and young people. Um, with outreach to those communities. Um, and what they found at those forums was that the people who showed up were markedly more supportive of housing density. Um, and they also, you know, going back to your question about process, they also felt like the process was really fair. A number of the people, particularly the renters and the um, people of color focused groups, said that they had actually never participated in local politics before because when the traditional voices get loud um, at public hearings. Rings, they felt like they they could they didn't have anything to contribute, um, or they just had never shown up at all because um, no one had asked them. And so, just getting asked and having this deliberate recruitment on the part of local government both yielded different voice, um, sort of different opinion um, opinions coming to the forefront when it came to housing conversations. But it also increased sort of perceptions of legitimacy in the process. Mm.
2: Jerusalem, with our, you know, last minute or so here, I just wanted to give, you know, you've been thinking about this a lot, clearly. And what do you see as perspective, you know, maybe not solutions, but just reforms?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the looking at what's happening with California's regional housing needs allocation process um, is 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 really instructive here. And I know I've, I've kind of had this already, but I think that it's pretty clear that moving these decisions to the state level is the primary way that you can ensure that there are still democratic processes. These people are still, of course, electorally responsive <laughs> to um, the wide swath of people who who, who vote, in, and that includes people who are opposed to a lot of what I've been talking about here today, but they have a broader mandate and they have the ability to think um, regionally and to think on um, a statewide level and not just what am I doing to serve my immediate community and not really thinking about the broader implications of that. So I think if the big takeaway here is just um, we, we have to think clearly about what is actually providing for democratic processes and democratic outcomes. Um, I think one of the best PR coups, uh, of, of, of participatory, participatory democracy is, is the name. Um, and that it's not actually providing the kind of democratic outcomes that anyone thinks are reasonable, especially when you look at the kind of research that Catherine's done about who is showing up and, um, You know, I think it's really great that there are processes like what's going on in Newton. I think I've heard of things now where local governments are using survey data even to try and get a better sense of what their community really wants. But at the end of the day here, I think it's really important to recognize that it shouldn't be in anyone's uh, it shouldn't be required to engage in your local government repeatedly to get access to basic services. You shouldn't have to think about these issues to make sure you get housing.
2: Yeah. We've been talking about the infrastructure of civic engagement here. We've been joined by Jerusalem Demsas, a staff writer at The Atlantic Magazine, Catherine Levine Einstein, associate professor of political science at BU, and Paul Sabin, a professor in the Department of History at Yale. Thank you all so, so much. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds
6: for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the
4: Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home,
5: Get wall to wall
0: Wi Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply, not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
8: Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.